Today's show is sponsored by Juniper Networks. Future belongs to the fast, and the cloud is where speed happens. In today's cloud-native world of microservices and containers, there's mounting pressure to deliver an excellent application experience. Enter Juniper Networks Contrail Networking, which orchestrates virtual networks and network services at the performance and scale required of the largest, most dynamic clouds. It's simple, open, and agile. Contrail Networking provides a consistent networking and security experience for multi-cluster deployments running in the environments that you care about in this open, cloud-native world. Don't just take their word for it. See how it's being used in the wild to scale network infrastructure beyond the data center and enable the next generation of enterprise and telco clouds. Check out juniper.net slash cloudcast to learn more. That's juniper.net slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Good to be back with all of you. Another per Sunday perspective show. Another uh, chance to sort of dig into a topic a little more, uh, less less interview, a little more digging into a topic. And one of the things that we had done when we first started doing these um, Sunday perspective show was we kind of did some um, you know lessons learned from. And a lot of times in those early ones, uh, we looked at some technologies that you know had started off with a lot of promise. A lot of the industry was really excited about them. And then they sort of uh, maybe didn't quite deliver on the on the world changingness of what they did. So you know we had done some stuff on OpenStack and Docker and, uh, and Cloud Foundry, and you know got a lot of really good feedback on that. I think sometimes um, you know people appreciated uh, you know a that we 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 tried to be very uh, neutral in those. Um, you know we didn't don't have a dog in the fight. Uh, you know technology comes and goes, but more importantly, I think sometimes it's important to. To have some perspective, some historical perspective on how we got here, um, you know, it's it's technology has a tendency to repeat itself. If you if you pay attention, there are certain uh, steps that companies take or technologies take, depending on if they're cloud services or open source or whatever. Um, and I wanted to do another sort of you know lessons learned from, um, and this one isn't going to be sort of in the category of of things either that that didn't uh, make it or that we expect to not make it, but one that we've followed for a long time here at the Cloudcast, and that's HashiCorp. And HashiCorp, the corporation, uh, has just recently in the last couple of weeks uh, put out their S1, signaling to the market that they intend to have an IPO sometime soon. And HashiCorp is a company that we've probably had on the show. As much as any other company uh, in in our history, and you know, part of the reason for that is they're just number one. They're just super nice people. Uh, they've always been super nice to us. We have known Mitchell and Arman and Kevin and the you know the few folks who really kind of started the company since it was literally two or three of them. Uh, we remember going up to their offices out in San Francisco when um, you know it seemed like literally uh, it wasn't a dorm room, but it felt very much like a dorm room. I think it was two little tiny things that, that probably used to be an apartment, uh, you know, and just and talking to them. But they've been really, really good uh, about being on the show. Uh, we're not doing the show because, you know, we, we, we like them a lot. I mean, we, we do enjoy covering stuff that they do, but they've always been great at doing the one thing that we really always try and do on the show, which is let's educate people. Let's let's take some topics, uh, find some people that are really smart, take some topics and, and ask questions and use it as an educational experience. And so, you know, as I mentioned, we've probably had them on more than anybody in the show. I think we started having them on in in 2013. Uh, it was right around the time when 
Um, people were talking about this thing called Vagrant quite a bit. Uh, Mitchell came on. Um, he just was kind of talking to us about, you know, what it meant to to automate things. And, you know, the reason why he had built Vagrant and kind of his mindset of what he had done, um, having come from, uh, I believe, just having run an ISP or, you know, being a, a, an assist admin uh, for um, some sort of ISP or, or internet service provider. And, you know, over the years, they've always sort of helped us understand new technologies, helped us understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so we thought it would be very interesting to sort of figure out, you know, how did they get to the point where they're making it to IPO? Because a lot of companies um, don't make it to IPO. Uh, we've had lots on the show who didn't make it to IPO, but also, uh, you know, open source projects that, uh, you know, maybe didn't necessarily survive and maybe why HashiCorp has has survived longer than others and uh, how we got there. So we're going to get to digging into some of all that right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by BMC and BMC wants to know, is your business on its A game? The A-game is when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. That's bmc.com slash A-game. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog. Now with cloud security posture management, Datadog allows you to see compliance scores across your infrastructure and track conformance to industry benchmarks such as CIS and other regulatory standards, out-of-the-box cloud and infrastructure configuration rules. Datadog Cloud Security Posture Management, CSPM, performs configuration audits across cloud accounts, hosts, and containers. As a special offer for Cloudcast listeners, you can sign up for a free two-week trial to see for yourself how Datadog can elevate your cloud infrastructure security posture by going to datadog.com slash security dash cloudcast. That's datadog.com slash security dash cloudcast. Sign up now and receive a free Datadog t-shirt. And we're back. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to dig into HashiCorp and, and their S1 and a little bit of kind of historical, uh, you know, how they got to this point and, you know, kind of our perspective on you know why? Why we think it's it's possible that they are you know now thinking about doing an IPO when when maybe some other companies uh, didn't make it to IPO. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of comparison of them to uh, some recent other uh, IPOs that came out from you know technology companies that uh, had a big following and uh, had a lot of expectations and so forth. So let's um <clears throat> let's dive into a few basic things first. Um, you know they did they did announce their S one. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, also, a couple of good um, articles that were written uh, by folks like Clouded Judgment and others uh, that have kind of dug into their financials and, and what they look like, especially as they benchmark them against other companies. But uh, let's look at a few things real basic um, and, and maybe do some comparisons just against some things that, that a lot of us know pretty well. Uh, current revenue, $295 million. That's over the last 12 months. So you know, about $300 million in revenue over the last 12 months. Uh, gross margins, 82%. Uh, revenue growth, again, over the last 12 months, 55%. So healthy growth uh, on $300 million. Uh, they have taken uh, basically $350 million in funding. So uh, I think they got up to an E round. So basically five rounds of funding. Um, operating margin, 22%. Um, and uh, net revenue retention is 124%. So what that means is um, you know, a customer that spent uh, $1 with them last year is now spending about a dollar and a quarter. Or if they spend $100 last year, they're now spending you know, about $125 for them. So good to see, uh, you, know, y- you want to see that number uh, growing year over year basically means either the customer is using your technology successfully and they have a need to use more of it, 
or in some cases you uh, have additional technologies or products in your portfolio that you're able to sell as an add-on to uh, something else somebody's used. So let's let's kind of compare them to just another company who isn't necessarily in the exact same domain as them, but recently IPO'd a company that a lot of company a lot of people know, uh, and that's GitLab. So GitLab uh, last twelve month revenue one hundred and seventy nine, so call it one hundred and eighty million. So uh, one hundred eighty million versus two hundred ninety five million for HashiCorp. Uh, gross margin is eighty eight percent versus HashiCorp's eighty two percent, so slightly higher. Uh, revenue growth, 72% over the last year versus 55% for HashiCorp. Uh, they've taken around $414 million in funding versus $350 million in funding versus HashiCorp, so a little more, uh, basically, you know, the equivalent of like one more round. Uh, their net uh, revenue retention is 152%, so uh, HashiCorp 124. So again, uh, getting a $1.50 for every dollar they took in the year before, so really good. And then their operating margin is much better, 50% versus Hashi at 22%. I'm not using those to make any sort of judgment on one company versus the other. I just kind of wanted to use them as a comparison, uh, one versus the other uh, recent companies in this sort of cloud native space that have recently gone IPO. Now, let's um, let's compare that to another company that we had covered in the past uh, that many people know and follow, uh, Pivotal. So Pivotal, uh, 2018, I believe, roughly went to IPO. Um, so Pivotal, kind of a very different sort of company, again, uh, in the cloud native space, uh, early in the cloud native space, but you know, same sort of time frame as HashiCorp getting started, 2013, 2012, 2014-ish time frame. Uh, very, very different capital structure, though. Uh, they had uh, done $509 million in revenue uh, as of the time of their of their S one, so again versus three fifty for HashiCorp or roughly two hundred million for uh, GitLab. Uh, gross margin was only fifty five percent, and again part of that was because um, they were doing much more consulting business than they were software business. Although the software business had begun to ramp up for Pivotal, but uh, lower gross margin. Uh, revenue growth uh, for Pivotal at the time over the last 12 months, they, their IPO was 22%. So again, uh, comparing that to 55% for HashiCorp and 72% for GitLab. And they had taken in uh, $1.7 billion in funding. So a lot, a lot of funding, a lot of people um, at Pivotal. So again, uh, you know, very different rounds of funding. Again, uh, HashiCorp had taken $350 million and um, <clears throat> Uh, GitLab had taken 414 million, so you know nearly five times as much in uh, in funding. So just kind of throwing those numbers out there to give you some sense of you know how Hashi uh, compares to some other companies we've recently seen that are you know sort of in this cloud native space. Obviously, Hashi is much more infrastructure centric, uh, automation centric, and so forth. You know some aspect of of um, you know, applications, but also very security centric. Uh, GitLab, much more DevOps centric, DevSecOps centric, uh, Pivotal, much more application centric. So, <clears throat> you know, three companies that very, very well known, uh, somewhat different, you know, structure in terms of their their funding and their their margins and so on and so forth. Um, but as I think about, you know, as I think about Hashi and and what's made them successful or what's made them different than other companies in this space. So if you think about kind of who Hashi competes against, you know, it was always sort of talked about uh, oftentimes, you know, in the automation space, it would be Ansible, which, um, you know, was eventually acquired by Red Hat for about $150 million. They never really, uh, you know, grew big enough to ever get to an IPO. Uh, Red Hat snatched them up very, or very early in their life cycle. <clears throat> so a little bit tougher to compare against them. But they're a very similar company in that 
started with open source technology, built around automation, um, never really fought with their their community, really was, was very community friendly. Uh, Chef uh, was in that space. Um, you know, Chef uh, got started earlier uh, in the in the kind of infrastructure as code space, DevOps space. Really, kind of helped define DevOps, um, but never really found a second product beyond uh, beyond Chef um, or what you know what used to be called. I think it was called Ops Work or Ops Code uh, became Chef, <clears throat> but they sort of struggled. They eventually uh, got bought up by private equity, and then Puppet uh, Puppet has taken a lot of funding. Um, never really uh, made it to IPO and and that whole sort of space, you know. Probably lost out, became third or fourth um, in that market space to Ansible and um, you know HashiCorp and some others and so forth. So um, you know, it's not that uh, just one company is going to win in a space, right? There can be a couple of different winners. Um, but I think you know when we look at it, one of the really interesting things that we always noticed about about HashiCorp was. They always had a very pragmatic, user-centric approach, right? They were always coming from the perspective of um, what what tool would we build if we needed to solve the types of problems that that their customers were solving, right? So number one, everything they did was always open source. Number two, as I mentioned early on, uh, Mitchell and, and and some of the early folks had come from really the operations side of the world, uh, very similar to the way we used to talk to uh, the folks from CoreOS, uh, had very much come from the, the operations side of the world and were building tools that they felt like would have really helped them. So I think they were always... You know, very determined to build things that that they would have built for themselves, um, and and that really helped them connect with their their users and their communities. Right, like the, people felt like they really understood the space and they were building for that space. Um, second thing that we found was really interesting, um, and this is going to be a really interesting comparison to GitLab. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, if we go back five years, ten years, um, you know, whether you look at a, a Pivotal or you look at uh, you know some other things that have come along. GitLab and so forth, they tended to you know start with something, but then they, as they grew and they wanted to sell more to their customer base or they wanted to solve more problems or whatever, they tended to build more and more of a stack, much of a layered stack, um, in which you know you not only could buy sort of the pieces and parts, but then if you you know kind of wanted more, you you'd buy this sort of layered stack, and. That approach, uh, on one hand, has worked very well. You know, it's sort of the the idea of you're a platform, and then you build capabilities on top of the core platform. Uh, but what's interesting to watch is, you know, the cloud has really changed how we think about technology. Right? We used to be very applicable or very at minimum, uh, yeah, very very open to the idea of, you know, buying the complete stack. It solves a lot of problems for you and, you know, it came together, you probably are going to get some bundled discounts on pricing and so on and so forth. But what the cloud really ended up doing, uh, and, you know, AWS in particular was, you know, not building sort of stacks of things, but really building individual tools, but doing it at a, a cloud level. So very much the sort of Unix individual tool approach. And the reason I bring this up is that, uh, you know, if you if you haven't paid attention to Hashi in a long time, uh, there was a thing they did early on, uh, probably a couple of years into their existence, um, you know, 14, 15 timeframe, where they introduced something called HashiCorp Atlas, uh, HashiCorp Atlas. And what that was, was, was really taking all of their different tools, Console and Vagrant and uh, Terraform and Vault and uh, a couple other things at the time, and trying to sell them as a complete package, right? Like you sort of got everything. And what was interesting was they made a lot of noise about that. It was a big, big push and we did a show about it. And then maybe six, eight months later, it went away. And I think what they realized was 
you know, the buyers and the users of those things didn't necessarily want to buy everything together, right? There was enough, you know, the the buyer of Vault, the user of Vault was going to be different than the buyer and the user of Terraform was going to be different than possibly the buyer or the user of Console. And so it was probably very hard to find a buying center that wanted all those things. And so I think it's interesting that they quickly realized that they were better off sort of selling or having projects, open source projects for the individual projects and not necessarily forcing them to be pushed together. And again, I use that as a as just an interesting kind of comparison point versus GitLab, which has continued to uh, push this idea of the GitLab platform and, and adding more and more capabilities to it. And again, it'll be interesting to see which one of those approaches tends to win out, right? If if the cloud approach tends to win out, then you would think sort of Hashi's pro- approach will continue to do well. Um, you know, if you know we we realize that we're really in sort of the the more um, mainstream users stage of the cloud, um, and this is the same sort of challenge that that AWS has and some of the others have. You know, people may want to be buying more solution type of of oriented things, and and you know that's where GitLab is taking their their strategy and their and their product building. So it'll be very interesting to watch those two. I think. Um, you know, if you're doing that, you really have to be very aligned to a pretty well-defined buyer or a pretty well-defined set of use cases. It's hard to take that sort of platform level approach if your use cases are all over the place, right? So that'll be really interesting. Um, next thing, you know, that, that I always thought was interesting about HashiCorp was early on, they were very aligned to usage in the public cloud, right? So they were very, very uh, aligned to making sure their stuff worked great with AWS, uh, eventually worked great with Azure and then Google Cloud and other things. But they were they were there in the early days, right? They were one of the tools that the earliest adopters using the cloud were using things like Terraform. And, you know, it became very much the de facto standard, right? There was there, could you use Chef or Puppet or Ansible? Sure. But Terraform was really built for that sort of thing. So they, they gained an early, early foothold in being the one that was really good for the public cloud. Obviously, we've seen the public cloud take off in growth. But, you know, if you went back to 2013, 2014, it wasn't obvious that it was going to be as big as it is now, six, seven, eight years later. So, you know, uh, making that uh, decision to really focus on that early on, I think, was super important. Another thing that I'll talk about, and, you know, this is going to come out sort of harsh and maybe a little bit unpleasant, but they, they didn't actively fight with their community. Right. I mean, if we compare them to the way that Pivotal treated the the Cloud Foundry com- community, or Docker Incorporated treated the Docker community, you never hear anybody say bad things about HashiCorp. Uh, you know, whether it's the corporation or whether it's how they treat the open source communities that are around their their open source projects that they started. You know, they never went off with this big idea of we're going to change the world. We're better than everybody else. Our culture is better than everybody else. We, you know, we know, you know, what developers, you know, we're going to change the way developers work. We're going to change the world. There never really was a whole lot of bravado. And I think a lot of that comes from the personalities of of, uh, of Mitchell and, and Armand, who, who, you know, have, have run the company for a long time. Um, but, you know, they just, they were, they were just more pleasant in the community. And, you know, it, you know, there's there's sort of a you know nice guys finish last or should nice guys finish first. You know, it depends if you're which side of the Michael Dell book you're on. But uh, you know, HashiCorp and the the folks leading HashiCorp were always very much about just hey, we're putting technology out there. Um, 
Hopefully you'll love it, uh, but we're not going to fight you over it. Um, you know, they made some decisions to, you know, go against some of the um, the mainstream things. They never really, you know, tried to build Kubernetes. They weren't going to build a distribution of Kubernetes. They were going to stick with um, what they had built in terms of uh, in terms of uh, container orchestration and so forth. And um, you know, I think that served them very well. Right? It, they they eventually figured out where they were good. Um, you know, it, it it tends to be Vault and Terraform. Not that the other products aren't good. Um, if their customers like some of the other things that they do, um, they're more than happy to you know to support those folks. And and that may not be the most mainstream uh, of things, but you know, for what they do, they do it very very well. And they've never you know been the ones who turned people off. And they've never been the ones that the rest of the community said. Boy, those those guys are jerks. We should, you know, we should all get behind this alternative thing. They just said, we're going to build things that we think are going to be useful. Um, you know, we're going to obviously they'll compete where they compete in the commercial market and so forth. But uh, you know, being a being a good citizen, <laughs> being a good person, uh, I think has, has has benefited them, and I think it just is a natural extension of of the people that run the company. It's just it's who they are. Um, you know, they've they've always been uh, very remote friendly. So, you know, things like COVID coming along wasn't going to disrupt their company. Um, it allowed them to go get people no matter where they were. They weren't, uh, you know, kind of deterministic that they were going to have to be in San Francisco. And I think GitLab has a similar mindset of, you know, uh, remote first, remote always, uh, remote friendly, those sort of things. And I think those are going to play even more dividends in the future than maybe they even have in the past, just given, you know, what's what all's changed with COVID and things. Next thing I had on my list was, you know, in a lot of open source centric companies don't necessarily figure this out, but, um, you know, they had a commercially viable product early on. And, uh, for a lot of folks, they don't necessarily understand what HashiCorp does, or they know HashiCorp best for being in the sort of automation business, things like Terraform and so forth, but they made most of their money. I mean, if you really boiled it down, they're a security company. They made most of their money from vault. And I remember really, really early on, again, I mentioned that we, we went out to their, their offices and I forget what the reason was, but a few of us went out to their offices. I think it was Aaron and I and some others. And I remember talking to, to Kevin, who was uh, the original marketing um, person. He may still run marketing. I forget. Um, but he said, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of a security company. Don't, don't tell anybody, right? Like, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of a, a quiet secret that, that they were making their money on Vault. Um, people were willing to pay them for Vault. Um, it paid pretty well, uh, at least compared to other things. And um, it allowed them to keep doing the other things that they were building, right? They, they felt very passionate, things like Terraform and Console and other things needed to get built. They were, you know, tools that had to get built. But they were making their money off of Vault, and people were willing to pay for it. And you know, it's interesting that people don't really think of them as purely a security company the way that you know uh, Palo Alto or, or somebody else is. But uh, they are very much uh, you know a, a security company at the core of at least how they monetize things. And uh, that's I think a little bit unusual that that the way that they monetize isn't terribly well known. But um, you know, they they figured out how to be that. Uh, at least initial revenue source, they they do make money on Terraform, and if you you know you look through their S one, you'll see some of that. But that part is is really really interesting, uh, just to sort of see you know a lot of companies never figure out how to monetize that first product, that first thing that 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 you know people like and so forth, and they they figured that out. And and quite honestly, that's half the battle. That's that's a lot of half the battle. Now that'll be more challenging as they go IPO, um, you know, because Wall Street will expect. 
uh, certain growth rates and certain things. But, uh, you know, they, they figured that out early on. And I remember uh, talking to Mitchell early, early on when it was just first Vagrant. And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm more than break even on just the, the VMware licenses of Vagrant. And it allows me to do, you know, Vagrant for Linux and for other types of things. And so, you know, they've always been very conscious of, you know, yes, taking, taking uh, VC funding when it allowed them to grow, but but trying to be very conscious of how to run a business that was profitable on the things that that they could control and not just sort of telling the world, well, we'll eventually figure out how to monetize things. And then the last thing that I think about with HashiCorp, and, and again, I've probably missed a lot. And, and for anybody who's within the company, you're probably, you know, if you're listening to this, you're probably raving, waving some red flags going, hey, no, you missed this and you missed that. And, and if we did it, we apologize. But this is just sort of, you know, our outside view of, of what's made Hashi successful and, uh, you know, may continue to make it successful going forward at the IPO. Um, you know, they're, they're hitting this IPO at, at very good timing, right? And I remember for a long time, there was a lot of us who would sort of question, like, who's going to buy Hashi, right? If they're if they're taking three hundred fifty million at the normal, you know, ten x sort of rate that people pay above what's been taken in, that's a three and a half billion dollar company. It's a multi billion dollar company. And we sort of said, well, I don't know. You know, I guess they'll have to get to IPO. Um, you know, and, and like we said, you know, they're they're now up around three hundred million dollars. They're growing fifty something percent uh, year over year. So, um, you know, they start to become a pretty interesting business. Um, and you know the timing of it could probably probably couldn't be better, right? If they had tried to IPO two years ago, you know maybe the market wasn't uh, as excited as it is right now. Um, yeah, you know, maybe the market's a little a little too hot right now. Maybe you could argue, um, but you know I think if you if you align it to hey we've got a profitable product, um, we're, we've got growth rates, uh, we're aligned to the public cloud very well, uh, we don't fight with our community. Um, you know, we're still able to innovate. Uh, the founders are still around. Um, you know, those are a lot of very, very good positives um, that are there for the company. And so, you know, I'm not making any judgment one way or the other how I think their IPO will go or how successful it will be long term. Please don't take this as any sort of, uh, you know, stock advice or investment advice. We are definitely not an investment advice show. But, you know, I thought it might be sort of interesting to, you know, we, we've covered the company for a long time. Um, we've, we've really enjoyed, we've always enjoyed talking to them. Um, you know, for no other reason, like I said, is they've always understood that in talking to us, they were just educating us, right? They weren't uh, trying to push anything, you know, down our throat. They weren't trying to sell to us. Um, they were very clear that they have an opinion on things and and this is their opinion. But, you know, they, they were very much about, let's educate the market. And if we educate the market and we put good technology out there, um, there's a possibility that good things will happen with them. And it seems like you know, if you look at their business, um, you know, a lot of the fundamentals are, are very strong. Uh, they're very interesting. And again, I used a couple of benchmarks. Um, they sort of fall in between, but but closer to GitLab than Pivotal. And and that's a good sign given, um, you know, given how GitLab has done with their IPO and, and subsequent, uh, at least first quarter or so forth, the market. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Hopefully some of this was, was sort of interesting to you. Again, um, you know, I always like to sometimes do these historical things because I think there's there's lessons to be learned from, uh, you know, past companies, you know, good and bad and lessons to be learned from companies that are kind of walking in, in similar footsteps. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Um, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope, uh, you learned a little bit, something from it. Um, as always, thanks to everybody for giving us feedback. Uh, we, we got a really nice, uh, write up as, as the number one cloud podcast, um, here recently. If you check our Twitter feed, you'll see it in the notes, but, uh, Thanks to everybody. We couldn't do it without you. You know, we couldn't do it without your listening each and every week, without telling a friend, without helping us grow the show, following us on Twitter, giving us feedback and all the places you get your podcast and just 
you know, giving us feedback uh, on on what you want to hear, right? So show at thecloudcast.net. Send us your feedback. Send us your suggestions. We've been getting more and more of those lately. We love hearing from people. Um, So with that, I'm going to wrap it up and we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 